arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Ladies and gentlemen, Patch and Sherry have been separated for some time. Sherry is in captivity and has befriended one of the exiles named Rico. He names names regarding the Oswald move to Dallas. A number of people are orchestrating at least a partial maneuvering of Oswald in Dallas, while the anti-Castro exiles are in safe houses. Patch is still in New Orleans at Churchill Farms, owned by Carlos Marcello. Elements of the assassination are revealed all around, but Patch has still not regained his memory. Here is where the assassination plot and the plot of Return to Dallas mirror each other. The information going forward is sourced and self-evident to the JFK assassination. We are less than a month away from Dealey Plaza. We begin installment 8 of Return to Dallas by Robert P. Fitt. Chapter 50. Churchill Farms, outside New Orleans, Saturday, October 26, 1963, 9 p.m. They had rehabbed the hunting lodge in the 1950s, according to Moynihan when Carlos Marcello added a kitchen and a dining room. The lodge existed on a remote corner of 7,000 acres of swampland near the ocean. A pier and marina with access through the bayous to the gulf made surreptitious trips easy and convenient. Moynihan adjusted his glasses and lifted the phone closer to his mouth, but his voice roared. I don't know how much plainer I can make it. You go down to the garage and just say you're Oswald and you're applying for an apartment up there at Baton Rouge. Right. Then call me tomorrow, idiot. I have a plumbing leak in the kitchen. He hung up the phone. Start the projector ID, said the little man with dark beard stubble. He sat on a leather sofa with his feet up and a beer in his hand. Does it look like I can start the projector, Nicolo? Nicolo set down the beer and moved his arm around. My arm hurts from throwing that football on the lawn. Good, you'd fit right in with the Kennedys. That'll cost you. You start the projector. Unless you want to watch that movie in two feet of water, you let me fix this fucking drain. What kind of people worked on this place? Call a plumber. Out here? Shut up, Nicolo. The wood cabinet's little zenith radio sat atop the isolated ramshackle house's aqua-colored refrigerator. Moynihan twisted the dial to get a better signal. Then he moved under the sink to tighten the drain leak. Demonstrators today in Dallas booed and beat and spat upon Ambassador Adlai E. Stevenson. Stevenson was the guest of honor at the Dallas Council of World Affairs and has advocated ridding the United States of nuclear weapons. Good, said Moynihan from under the sink. I wish I was down there. I'd throw a rotten tomato at the bastard. No shit. What about you, Kincaid? You like that lefty Stevenson? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You're listening to KTIB AM 63. And now news from the nation's capital. President Kennedy this week is signing the Maternal and Child Health and Mental Retardation Planning Bill in the Oval Office later this morning. The President spoke at 11.30 on Thursday after signing the bill. Jesus Christ, you're trying to torture us with Kennedy, R.D.? You know what Mr. Marcello said right down here. 
Mr. Marcello says a lot of things, R.D. Livararasi na peripa di la scarpa. Nicola walked up to Moynihan, still under the sink, and spoke in a softer voice, even though Patch could hear him clearly. It's more than just taking a stone out of your shoe. The dog will keep biting you if you cut off the tail. You need to cut off the head. The Senate Rules Committee yesterday has agreed to investigate Senate aide Bobby Baker. Baker, who resigned on October 3rd, is linked to powerful figures in Washington, including Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson who was the majority leader from 1952 to 1960. Baker resigned on October 7th and refused to appear before a Senate committee. Moynihan slid from under the sink. You have to remember, Nico, Mr. Marcello was illegally taken out of this country by the Attorney General and dropped in Guatemala. You don't do that to people. Mr. Marcello became a celebrity down there. I heard the skinny. 30-plus Justice Department cases against people we know, just in 1960. This year we're approaching 300. Hoffer is right. The Attorney General is a little bastard. Moynihan motioned for Nicolo to take his seat. Then he opened a bottle of beer and tossed the cap toward the wastebasket. In sports, Sandy Koufax is the unanimous winner of Major League Baseball Cy Young Award this week. Koufax ended the 1963 season with a record ERA of 1.88. I miss seeing Koufax pitch by a day, said Patch. I saw Drysdale. No shit, in July. Mr. Rosselli is very close with the Dodgers. If it's in L.A. or Vegas, he's close to it, said Moynihan as he and Nicolo laughed. Beatlemania has spread to Stockholm, Sweden, where the group performed in front of a studio audience of teenage girls. A hundred tickets were given away, but more than twice as many people turned up in the hope of seeing the performance. Girls in the audience screamed in a crazy madness, and boys are wearing their hair Hamlet style. Will you shut that thing off, R.D.? Who the hell cares about teeny bopper bullshit and one-hit wonder groups? Moynihan twisted the switch. What's the name of this movie, asked Patch. He walked by night said Nicolo. Johnny Rosselli put money into this film in the 40s. I don't know how it ended up here. You all set with your beer, Nicolo? asked Moynihan. I'm fine, R.D. Moynihan flipped the projector switch. A few countdown numbers appeared in black and white on the forward screen in front of the stone fireplace. Then as the main title flashed in gray letters, Moynihan turned up the projector sound. This guy outwits the cops. Jack Webb in this? asked Nicolo. Yeah, but it's the little shit who fools them, said Moynihan. They must nail the son of a bitch. I'm not saying. This is an old movie, said Patch. As on the screen, the man with the mustache reached into his pocket. But instead of taking out identification, he yanked out a gun and pumped bullets into the cop in the car. Cop should have been out of the car with his gun drawn, said Nicolo. You kill a cop and you get everyone pissed off, said Moynihan especially if he has a wife and kids. Nicolo drank the beer and set it on the end table. Pop killer, they want this guy hung up by the balls. They gotta find him first, Nicolo. Patch sat up on the bed, abutting the knotty pine wall. Knowing Nicolo and Moynihan were armed in the adjoining bedrooms provided him an odd reassurance. Sunlight crossed through each individual blind as he put on his slacks. He wandered into the lodge's main room. 
Moynihan snored in the front room. The sun traced a swath across the yellow and black oriental rug near the trifold screen in front of the stone fireplace. He unlocked the wood frame door and stepped onto the surrounding wood veranda, the lodge's main room. The sun traced a swath across the yellow and black oriental rug near the trifold screen in front of the stone fireplace. He unlocked the wood frame door and stepped onto the surrounding wood veranda. The sound of distant boat horns or seabirds sweeping in from the gulf occasionally broke the stillness. Patch turned toward the beckoning sun and a long stretch of twisted vines, scraggly trees, and low-lying water pools. The hair on his arms and back of his head stood upright as if surrounded by static electricity. Gradually, a shaded glass envelope covered his view of the field and the woods. His feet were several inches off the ground, yet he had solid footing. The dirt road back to the main highway cut through the swamp. In the field, separating the swamp, a blackbird, wings flapping ever so slowly, trekked above the field. Steam rose off the roof tiles like a frozen mass. Now he remembered what Mankiewicz had said in Florida about retrograde, but he wanted Sherry with him. His fingers, like hitting an impenetrable wall, remained slightly away from the lodge's clapboard. He descended the veranda's wood steps and moved toward the bird's spreading wings. The clapboards and the ground below formed a smooth, clear surface several inches away, just as Mankiewicz had predicted. He pushed against the immovable transparency but could not break through the barrier. He ran across the field and turned halfway back toward the barn. Upon closer inspection, he clearly detected slight movement in the bird's wings as if it ever so slowly sloped upward. Why had he not been fully pulled back in time? It's as if he were hovering in this bubble without moving into the future. No doubt Moon's inability to fine-tune the system in the future caused the malfunction. Now he feared being trapped. Then just as quickly as the retrograde had encircled him, he shed the invisible bubble. The bird flew toward the swamp, the sun warmed his skin, and breezes came in from the ocean. Most importantly, the sound of songbirds and ocean waves beyond the swamp returned as if nothing had happened. He checked his watch. It was 7.05 a.m. Four minutes had passed inside the bubble, exactly four times slower than the real world. Hey, Patch, for Christ's sake, where have you been? shouted Moynihan in his sunglasses on the porch. He hurried onto the walkway with a drawn gun. The government pricks want your ass. Don't take any chances. I don't want to shoot you, but I'll blow your fucking head off if you come out here alone again. Patch stood and shielded his eyes. Okay. I like you, and Nicolo likes you, he said as he neared Patch in the center of the field. I felt cooped up. Yeah, I know. I feel that way sometimes myself. Moynihan, what time is it? Five past seven. He grabbed Patch's wrist. You better get that watch fixed. You're right. Moynihan quickly lit a cigarette with a portable lighter and exhaled. I talked to a friend of mine last night, McWilly. He wanted to know if you're all right. I met him in Vegas with Jack Ruby. Jack. Jack was at the Tropicana a few weeks ago. He's always calling Nicolo. Jack's a homo, you know. Like Ferry? Queer. Moynihan inhaled again and looked toward the blue gulf past the scraggly swamp bushes. Cuba is across the gulf, my friend. 
I owned two bars in Cuba while Jack ran guns with Robert McEwen. I helped Jack get Jeeps into Cuba in 1959. McEwen, he lives in Texas, said Patch, thinking back to the large house by the water. Joe Campisi told me about the night you came in from Vegas with Jack. He served you a nice meal at his place. Joe is a good friend of mine. If you ever need help in Dallas, you see Joe or Sheriff Will Decker. Thanks. Now we're all here instead of Cuba. One of my bars was in the lobby of the Plenza Hotel on the other side of Helios Street. McWilly was in Cuba, too. Now look what happened. Castro is a problem. No shit. I stayed right at the Debano Hotel, worked the casinos. We had it made. That was only six years ago. What the fuck? You liked the movie last night? Yeah, that guy never had a chance. Roy Morgan? No. No, he didn't. He knew he was fucked and so clever to store that rifle in the sewer blanket. He was like a rat. Moynihan laughed and then chucked the cigarette onto the grass. You're right. He was good for nothing. Chapter 51 The Tropicana Lounge, New Orleans, Louisiana Wednesday, October 30th, 1963, 8.01 p.m. News from Washington. Bobby Baker has acted as a go-between for Ed Lewison, a Las Vegas gambler with ties to organized crime. Baker is also linked to Las Vegas casinos. It is said that that money, that is, the money received by Lewison and Baker, may have gone to Vice President Lyndon Johnson. In Dallas, former CIA Director Alan W. Dulles addressed President Kennedy's suggestion that the United States and the Soviet Union should travel to the moon in a joint expedition. Dulles said he didn't know if the Soviets had withdrawn from the space race, and I don't think anyone can know. In an earlier speech in Fort Worth, the former CIA chief claimed the Soviets may be building a facade to overshadow space projects. International news. Ambassador Atwood today briefed the administration about the latest overtures toward peace with Fidel Castro. Is that right? Making peace with that commie. Moynihan not only shut off the car radio, but he banged the dash. We don't need to listen to that shit. Patch gazed at the lights of Jackson Square and the amusement park's bright gold Ferris wheel spokes. He wondered more about Moynihan's news that David Ferry had information about Sherry. He closed his eyes not knowing whether Ferry's news would be bad. Almost a month had passed since he had headed south to Laredo. Moynihan parked the car and brought them into a cafe and lounge. They were packed in the corner amidst the constant live jazz quartet's blast through the side speakers. Hatch could hardly hear Moynihan and two ruby-lipped blondes, probably hookers. As the cigarette smoke threatened to choke him, he had memories of a quiet flute player in some park in the afternoon. He visualized himself with another woman. He struggled to come up with her name. They were both in trouble and he didn't know why. He stood and was about to go to the restroom. Nicolo's brown eyes opened and he grabbed Patch's arms. Where you going, Patch? Bathroom. You ain't going nowhere alone. Nicolo wiggled his way out of the booth, motioned Patch with his head. Patch, our orders come from the top. Nothing can happen to you. Sorry. It's okay, kid. He patted Patch on the shoulder, then everyone laughed. Everybody has to take a leak sooner or later. Nicolo! at the little man in a white turtleneck. You got the call you were waiting for. Patch, come with me. Nicolo seemed to know exactly where he was going. He led Patch down to a payphone where another man 
rotund with spaghetti sauce on his white shirt, stood with the phone in his hand. When they left, Niccolo once again looked around the hall. Patch, cover your ears, and I mean cover. Patch pressed the butt of his hands against his ears. He did not want to hear the call, but Nicola was loud. Tell him to call me at the tropical court after nine. He hung up the phone and Patch remained standing with his hands pressed hard against his ears. Nicola pulled back his fingers. Okay, Patch, you can piss. David Ferry wore a traveling cap over his pretend rusty hair. Under the careful scrutiny of Nicolo and R.D., Ferry escorted Patch to a separate table. He did not order and he leaned forward. Patch, your girl is in a safe house and should be released this weekend. Why this weekend? It's not important. The waiter approached him and he spoke to the older man. Give me a bottle of wine, 1934. 1934? The waiter left and Ferry smiled. I actually have a proclivity for the law. I should have pursued the law earlier in my life. Now, as far as Sharon's concerned, she's been held since El Paso. They don't know where you are, thank God. The government? Well, they don't know either. These people are involved with Cuban operations. So just hold on for a few days, Patch, and we'll get her out without any difficulty. Sounds like there's a lot going on. Right. He looked around the lounge. Can I ask you a question? Because frankly, it hasn't been answered yet. Sure. Did Castro get a hold of you after you and Ray Mankiewicz broke away? David, I don't know. I don't even remember the damn. Mankiewicz told me about it, but I don't remember. Somebody put something in my blood. Ferry looked intrigued. Really? You mean for mind control? More like memory blockage with infinitesimally small particles. I feel like a dummy just being a hypnotist. Now who would have had the technical prowess to accomplish what you say? You'd need to have modern day Louis Pasteur. Then he laughed at his own joke. A car in Edison and Scrubs. Patch imagined Thomas Albert Edison in a pair of blue scrubs. An image of Kate in the park with the waiters was vivid in his thoughts. Kate. What's the matter? He asked Ferry, smiling. Wrong year? I just remembered a woman I was close to. Wow. We all have our various dalliances. Patch leaned back as the waiter poured the wine into thin spindle glasses. After the retrograde experience this morning and his replay of something that happened in Golden Gate Park, Patch was certain he had been sent back to 1963, but he could not figure the purpose of his trip. Chapter 52 Safe House, Dallas, Texas. Saturday. November 2nd, 1963. Rico called out her name as he knocked on the bedroom door. Sherry sat up. The alarm clock dial had not yet reached 6 a.m. She put on her bathrobe and opened the door. I'm sorry to be so early, Miss Thomas. I just heard they're outside planning some kind of demonstration against the president when he comes to Dallas. And someone may fire a gun against the curb. Oh, that's crazy. The FBI is in on this. Last week, the local agent, Horsty, he put Oswald on the high priority list because they were told by the CIA that Oswald tried to enter the Soviet embassy in Mexico City. Agent Horsty has been harassing Oswald's Russian wife. I know Oswald is upset because Horsty is in his personal business. Okay, thank you. And now the big thing, why they're talking out front. Something got fouled up in Chicago. 
I'm not sure what. And they're still out front. Listen, someone is still prating around Dallas pretending they're Oswald. Crazy. They sent someone into Morgan's gun shop in Fort Worth yesterday. The guy who said he was Oswald was acting like a crazy man trying to buy rifle ammunition. There are witnesses, a Mr. and Mrs. Dewey Bradford. Maybe it was Oswald. I know Oswald. He wasn't in Fort Worth when it happened. Seems as though another Oswald was at the Sportrome rifle range in Dallas. Whoever shot that rifle was an expert shot. Okay, thanks. One more thing. Oswald is getting money. He tried to cash a huge two-party check at Hutch's Market. He even said he was an ex-Marine. The real Oswald? Yeah. Point is, who's paying him? And he's been playing both sides again. He went to a meeting where General Walker spoke on the 23rd, and a different meeting with Michael Payne to the ACLU two days later. It makes no sense. Later in the morning, two additional things disturbed Sherry. With all the talk outside about something wrong in Chicago, news reports on the TV stated Kennedy's trip to Chicago had been canceled. Also on the table was a handbell somebody had picked up that was vehemently anti-Kennedy. Betraying the Constitution, she said, holding the handbell with the front and side photo of Kennedy. Invaded a sovereign state with federal troops. She threw the handbell back on the table. Why had she and Patch been sent to Chicago during the summer? There were reports of Valley's cache of weapons in the closet, and his angry temperament must have been drawn to the attention of someone. And now these Cubans here in Dallas were upset because something in Chicago had been mishandled. She pulled back the window curtains and peered through the blinds. The red pickup was parked diagonal across the lawn, and two groups of four men at either end of the lawn were animated and loud. We had him! We had him! shouted Felipe, and he banged the truck fender with his clenched fist. The meetings broke up mid-afternoon, just in time when the TV announced the suicides of the president of South Vietnam and his brother. Some suggested he was assassinated and that Washington had something to do with it. Rico burst through the front door. He turned on the table radio. He spoke through the commercials. This is not good. I feel as though this whole thing is coming apart. Someone called the authorities about an operation in Chicago. Felipe thinks the leak came from a group here in Dallas. She took two steps toward him. What operation? What the hell's going on, Rico? He twisted his lips and shifted his dark eyes from side to side. His eyes glazed. I don't know. She held him by the shoulders. Are these men trying to kill President Kennedy? I cannot say, he said and backed up toward the front door. Do not ask questions, Sherry. Say nothing. He reached for the doorknob without turning and then backed out the door. She did not know what to do. Trying to run would get her killed, but using the phone might help. Outside, she heard three quick pops. Then Felipe opened the door with his weapon drawn. He said nothing and marched to the phone. He ripped it off the wall and threw it against the floor, smashing the receiver and the dial pad. His teeth extended outward as he returned outside and slammed the door. The radio disc jockey's voice echoed throughout the room. And now, still solid from last summer, the times, and so much in love. Sherry backed up to the sofa and put her head in her hands as the song began by the seashore. Forces were in play now, forces she could not confront or stop. 
Churchill Farms, outside New Orleans, Saturday, November 2nd, 1963, 4.30 p.m. Patch unloaded the football. Moynihan watched the ball sail over his head and tumble end over end across the grass. He ran over the open area, picked up the ball, and trotted back to the lodge. I'm not an athlete, said Moynihan. He lit a cigarette. Then again, I don't have to be. Oh, it wasn't a great pass either. That's true, said Moynihan. He turned when a black Cadillac approached through the woods. Patch, you better head back into the lodge. Patch recognized Clay Shaw's Cadillac. Sure, catch you in a while. He climbed the veranda steps and entered the lodge. Once inside, he threw the ball in the corner. He opened the refrigerator and pulled out a beer. He flipped off the bottle cap with the opener. Outside, David Ferry opened the Cadillac door. Someone exited the opposite side. Clay Shaw, in a shirt and tie, lit a cigarette. Ferry's arms flailed through the air. From inside the lodge, Patch, although he could not hear the individual words, knew Ferry's rant did not stop. Alato Tavali rounded the car and began a similar animated performance. Shaw moved between the two men, pointed toward the road, and motioned with his hands for them to tone down. Moynihan stood off to the side. A cream-colored Cadillac emerged from the woods. All three men turned toward the approaching car. Ferry and Duvalli both simmered down. Shaw dropped his cigarette and snuffed it out in the dirt with his shoe. Ferry paced slowly near the back of the Cadillac and Duvalli straightened his hair. The other Cadillac came to a slow stop. A chauffeur opened the rear door. A little man in a light suit and black tie stepped outside. His graying hair, combed straight back, added to his authority. Shaw stepped ahead of the others to shake hands. Ferry and Moynihan stood back as Diwali also shook hands. Patch knew he had met this man before. Another man with wavy hair and glasses stood next to the little man. The little man lifted a newspaper upward and displayed it as if he were a newsboy trying to hawk the evening edition. Then he pointed at the front page and in a low voice sounded upset. Shaw offered a few comments as did the other men. Patch returned to the refrigerator and moved some cheese slices for a sandwich. Then he sat on the floor and twisted on the floor lamp. He had finished both the beer and the sandwich when Ferry boomed out Oswald's name. Patch stood and headed for the window. At this hour, car headlights shined across the field. The cream-colored car backed around in a circle and followed the road back to the woods. Ferry, Duvalli, and Shaw climbed in the black Cadillac. Moynihan folded the newspaper under his arms as he moved toward the steps. The outside door shook and he walked inside. How you doing, Patch? How's your arm? My arm sucks if you want to know the truth. With his left hand, Moynihan threw the folded paper on the couch. Patch opened up the headline. Mr. Marcello was not in a good mood. I don't like Miltier. Who's Miltier? Man who hates Negroes and has lots of money. Patch nodded and read the headline. Kennedy cancels Chicago trip. Kennedy canceled the Army-Navy game. Right. Moynihan, do you know something? Patch, let me be the first to tell you. I don't know nothing. Chapter 53. Bar Harbor Drive, Dallas, Texas, Sunday, November 3rd, 1963, 2.39 a.m. When she did not see Rico that evening, Sherry's anxiety reached a high pitch. 
two Cubans who did not speak English, guarded both the front door and the back hallway. She repeatedly asked for Rico, even Lawrence. They responded by turning up the Spanish radio music. A solid thud in the front room was followed by the lights. When the bedroom door opened, the light brightened, and a little man with a thin mustache and glasses stood over her. He wore an open white shirt and pleated trousers. Who are you? she asked. She raised her hand to shield the flashlight he shined in her face. His thick Spanish accent hinted at his identity. Okay, you're moving out. Where's Rico? You asked too many questions. Am I being arrested? Hell no, you're being moved. I want to talk to Patch. I'll give you a couple of minutes to dress. He turned to close the door. Who are you? Someone who holds your life in the palm of his hands. But get dressed, lady. The light blue Corvair moved steadily under the freeway streetlights, flashing as they passed. The little man with glasses signaled right and brought the car down the ramp. He flipped the directional a second time at the intersection and turned onto a two-lane highway. Who are you? None of your business. Great. I have word for you from Los Angeles. Lucky for you. You and Kincaid being protected until this is over. She raised her voice. Until what is over? Where is Patch? New Orleans. Well, that's the first straight answer I've gotten since El Paso. When can I see him? When we say. What? She asked as he pulled into the parking lot of the Cabana Motor Hotel. This is where they abducted me. What I want to do is see Patch. Stop your whining. You'll wait until they have told us to bring your boyfriend and you together. Now be patient. I will cooperate, but I will not be patient. You walk a narrow plank, woman. Chapter 54 Cabana Motor Hotel Bon Viant Room Dallas, Texas, Tuesday, November 5th, 1963, 10 a.m. A Dallas police officer named Bledsoe strut in full uniform across the lounge toward the table. A man named Pinky stood and stepped outside the booth. Sherry saw a black handgun stuck in his trousers. He shook hands with Bledsoe. Here's the woman. Bledsoe removed his hat. His wiry hair had begun to recede. Miss Thomas, what did Rico tell you about his compadres holding you in that house? Nothing. I have no idea who they are. Was anyone named Preslin in that house? No. Who is Preslin? I don't have that answer. We just don't know what he's doing here in Dallas. You were held here for your own protection. You know that, don't you? Oh, is that right? She asked, laughing. What I know is Kennedy's trip to Chicago was canceled. I think it's because somebody talked. About what? Somebody's trying to kill President Kennedy. Pinky looked at Bledsoe. You're in Chicago with your boyfriend, said Bledsoe. What did you see? That trip is confidential, she said, staring out the window. We were working for somebody. Who? No comment. You realize you could be in a lot of trouble in the FBI? Asked Pinky. Don't try and pin anything on us. We were just there to observe. Pinky pointed at her. 
Did you tell Rico anything about Chicago? No, Rico is a cook. I see. What did he tell you? What do you think he was? Some kind of blabbermouth? She did not trust Bledsoe. He's just a good friend. You don't think I needed someone to talk to being penned up in these houses all these weeks? I didn't make that decision, but be happy you weren't on the outside. You might be dead. Someone has separated Patch and me. Two unrelated events. Listen, we think Oswald is the one who called the Secret Service about a possible assassination attempt on the president at the Army-Navy game. Sherry turned, still staring at him. And how would Oswald have any knowledge of that? Bledsoe pointed at her. The guy's a Marxist. He's been arrested for handing out communist literature. The FBI is watching him closely. Agent Hostie, we need to stay close to this. Can I talk to Patch by phone? No. We're going out to Mrs. Payne's house in Irving. 2515 East 40th Street, Irving, Texas. Tuesday, November 5th, 1963. 1.30 p.m. Bledsoe pushed his three-ring notebook aside and looked through binoculars at a small ranch house a few hundred yards ahead. Do you know that the CIA is prohibited from spying in the U.S., its territories, trust properties, or Native American reservations? Like that's true. Mrs. Payne, do you know who she is? I saw her leave New Orleans with Oswald's wife. All the possessions were packed into a station wagon. Let's just say she's connected to significant people. Who cares? Oswald's rusky wife lives there, and Oswald comes here on the weekends. I think you're wasting your time. Bledsoe, you surely don't need me to help you. Do you know this Oswald guy is crazy? Just leave me out of it, Bledsoe. I have it on good authority that he got into a new Mercury on Saturday. Right at the Lincoln Mercury dealership downtown. Oswald drove like a maniac with Bogard, the salesman. All he could say, he would go back to Russia and buy a car. You know why, Miss Thomas? Because he's a goddamn commie defector, that's why. Did you ever ask yourself why Oswald would say something like that? Because he's a commie. Sherry shook her head. He doesn't even drive a car. He has no license. Bledsoe lifted the binoculars and nudged the notebook. A black and white photograph of Oswald in dark clothing slipped out of his notebook. Oswald had a rifle hoisted over his head. Her heart beat quickly as she looked away. There. There's Hostie, the FBI guy and another agent. They probably want to know why someone is sending all those money orders to Oswald at the Western Union. Sherry looked right as a dark car pulled up in front of the house. Bledsoe had already pushed the photo back in the notebook. Probably routine. Being questioned by the FBI is never routine. Who are you really working for, Bledsoe? He looked at her over the field glasses. Now, if I told you that, Miss Thomas, I'd be in as much trouble as you would be if you told me who you were working for. A stocky, dark-haired man in light chinos and a slender man walked together up the driveway. I'm sure Hostie would do his job. Why'd they send you out here, Bledsoe? I think Hostie's showing up here just to answer that question. You're missing the point. Why does anyone need to know if the FBI is snooping into Oswald's business? She gazed at the notebook. 
In all the surveillance, she and Patch had never seen Oswald with a weapon. Yet Bledsoe possessed a photograph that bordered on stupid. She studied his wide jar and wavy hair as he peered through the binoculars. Where did he get that photo and who else had copies? 2515 East 40th Street, Irving, Texas, Tuesday, November 8, 1963, 5.30 p.m. Bledsoe's tightened face represented confusion. He watched Lee Oswald in the backyard of Ruth Payne's house, gently and happily playing with the neighborhood children. This is very strange. What, that a man would have a fun side and the kids might like him? Bledsoe set down the binoculars. My briefings state that this man is an antisocial misfit. Maybe your briefings are wrong. He tightened his brow and then shook his head for several seconds. You didn't see anything here, Miss Thomas. This man is a communist and a misfit. Looks like a dad and a regular guy. Shut up, he said loudly as he started the car. Why, Officer Bledsoe? Why what? He said as he drove around the house, still staring at Oswald, playing with the children in the backyard. Little bastard. Chapter 55 New Orleans, Louisiana Veterans Day, Monday, November 11th, 1963 David Ferry carried three books in a long white cylindrical package as he passed Moynihan. Moynihan shrugged his shoulders. Ferry spread the hardcover books out over the coffee table and began writing furiously on a white-lined pad. He did not stop writing until afternoon. Over his shoulder, he saw Patch enter the lodge. Then he leaned back on the sofa. They want you in Florida for a couple days, Patch. Where? Tampa. I can get you more information. I need to track down a few legal issues for Mr. Marcello's trial. How's it going? He closed his eyes for a second. Time will tell. We need to talk to some people. Drink? No, I'll get something up at the main house in about a half an hour. Have you heard anything about Sherry? He opened up one of the hardcover books. I've been back and forth to Guatemala, and as a matter of fact, I'm flying out again this week. But I know she's okay. Patch stepped along the wood veranda. Moynihan smoked a cigarette in the white wicker chair overlooking the bright sun across the gulf. Patch sat near the window in the matching chair to his left. Dave says I'm heading to Tampa in a few days. Moynihan puffed on the shrinking cigarette. We all are. I heard some kind of shit is happening there. Like what? Patch, you ought to know by now not to ask questions. I suppose you're right. I know I'm right. He heard the shoes crack against the wood floor. The olive-skinned man appeared first. Patch had seen the other man, El Indio, in Miami. The two men turned and entered the house. A few minutes later, somebody closed the porch window. Big powwow with David, said Patch. They left you out of this. What you don't know can't hurt you, said Moynihan. Or what they think you don't know can't hurt you. Come with me. Doesn't mean we can't snoop. He led Patch around the house to a set of stairs extending toward the field. When they had stepped down three to four stairs, he motioned Patch to sit to the left. Moynihan pointed at a dryer hose hanging on the side of the house. The vent had become dislodged and had fallen into the garden below. Patch clearly heard David Ferry's voice. Now you're aware of the Oswald anti-fair play for Cuba. Tommy Beckham will deliver the plans. 
the maps and the photos to Larry for the entire sewer system in Dallas. What about the other Oswald? The second Oswald walked in and he simply asked where he could get a firing pin repaired. The clerk sent him to some gun place in Irving. So the word is out there. Yeah, the word is out. The real Oswald took out that book from the library, The Shark and the Sardines, by Jose Arrivado, the commie that used to operate in Guatemala. Oswalds joined the Civil Liberties Union, for God's sakes. We've even had someone pretending to be him shooting at the sports drone. It's all in place if Tampa falls through. Right. What about Ruby? He met with the assistant district attorney's office with five guys from the police force. The assistant walked right in on him. He's up fool for drawing attention. He's touched base with Dusty Miller and Barney Baker. He's got a goddamn big mouth. We can take care of him. Jack called my ex last October, and I have no idea why, whispered Moynihan to Patch. Jack used to be a runner for Capone. He was involved in the murder of a union guy back in 37 in Chicago. They leaned toward the vent. You look nervous, David. Come on. Oswald has outlined everything and shoved it in the FBI's face. He delivered a note to the FBI building to leave his family alone. I just hope that's all that he said. What he told them is, if you have anything you want to learn about me, then come to talk to me directly. If you don't cease bothering my wife, I will take appropriate action and report this to the proper authorities. You have an incredible memory, David. Right. He said, and they all laughed. That's his job, keeping Hostie away. I don't know how pissed he is. The FBI isn't going to stop anything, even if he tells him about the cakewalk. He's afraid this is going to get back to Joe and Edie's or Shackley. He went to his doctor this morning and got more pills. If he had paid his friggin' tax bill, he wouldn't have to go to the doctor. What does he owe now? Sixty grand, Christ. Jack is on his way to Vegas. McWillie has a present for him. That's him talking through his hat. I'm nervous about Tamper and Arturo Lorenz. We don't want another valley. Did Oswald tip off people? He may have. Let's hope Tampa pans out, boys. I hear the Florentine is a wonderful hotel. Beautiful view of the street where the traffic slows at the corner, Ferry said, chuckling. A scraping sound on the porch made Moynihan pull out the gun. He motioned for Patch to stay back by the vent. Moynihan shuffled along the boards with the gun extended out. Patch leaned toward the vent. Legal representation? You're not a lawyer, David. Thank God. That allows me the latitude to do what I have to do and find out what I have to find. They have her on Bar Harbor Drive by the golf course in Dallas. I had a cop take her out there. On another note, you've got the aerial pictures. Yeah. Destroy everything when we're done. If Tampa fails, I'll be at the rink in Houston as per the cakewalk. Moynihan hurried around the corner and waved Patch down the stairs. He picked up the football and motioned for Patch to run into the field. He threw a wobbly pass and sidestepped further away from the house. He held his shoulder. Patch now knew he had to break free of his captors and find out the location at Bar Harbor Drive in Dallas. The three men stepped outside the lodge. The third man grasped the white cylindrical package Ferry had brought inside. 
Pat stood only a few yards away from Moynihan with the football. Moynihan's cigarette hung from his lips. You broke that dry event, didn't you? Is the dryer broken? He asked as he threw the ball to Patch again. I'd like to know what's going on here. He inhaled on the filter tip. Is something going on? Churchill Farms, New Orleans, Louisiana, Monday, November 11, 1963, 6.36 p.m. Patch spun the football and stood when a film of President Kennedy, taking earlier in the day at Arlington National Cemetery, appeared on the evening news. On the RCA console, the president, in a dark suit, carried one side of a large flower wreath and moved with a military officer up to the tomb of the unknown soldier. Patch dropped the ball and screamed as he raised his hands into the air. No! No! Moynihan moved out of the kitchen with the phone in his hand. Hold on, Jack. For Christ's sake, hold on. Again, Patch yelled and screamed. No! No! Patch, what the hell? He set down the phone on the counter and raced around the sofa. He held Patch's shoulders. What's wrong? Patch fell back on the cushions. He spoke in a low voice. I'm at a table. I'm selling recordings of Kennedy. What the hell are you talking about? I don't, I don't know where that table is. Why? It hurts so much every time I think about it. I'm getting you a beer. You got hit in the head with that football. I'll be right back. He picked up the phone. Are you in Vegas now, Jack? Okay. You tell McWillie I'm available for anything they want me to do. Right. Meet with Jones and Gruber. And I would talk to Lenny Patrick. I don't give a shit what you do with Goldstein. Listen, you square with the IRS. It's none of my goddamn business. Moynihan slammed down the phone. Then he flipped off the cap with the opener and passed the cold bottle to Patch. You need some rest, Patch, before Florida. They might want you to fly a plane in Florida. Patch picked up the football. You're listening through the dryer vent again, Moynihan. No, I just heard that. Patch let the cold beer trickle down his throat. I'm just wondering how I got into this mess. Word is you came in through Rosselli. True. You don't want to buck up against what John Rosselli wants to do. Just do what's required. Right. You miss being with your girlfriend, I know. They're working on that. I do miss her. I never should have left her in El Paso. He had just uttered his last words when a bullet shattered the side window above the dryer vent. Patch instinctively leaped onto the rug as Moynihan fired at the window. He grabbed for more ammunition from the bottom drawer near the sink and threw a bolt-action rifle with a scope to Patch. Downstairs! Another bullet hit the house as they crawled to the cellar door. Moynihan reached up, twisted the steel knob, and pulled open the door. Both men traced their stairs in the dark. Moynihan quickly unlatched the bulkhead and slowly raised the wood doors. Holding the bolt-action rifle, Patch followed him into the yard. Three more bullets hit the porch to his right. Moynihan signaled with his head in the dim light, and they moved slowly across the grass toward the woods and onto the road. Then Moon's raspy voice, like an alligator emerging from the marshes for the kill, drifted across the yard. You're a dead man, Patch. You came back here. You'll never accomplish anything. A burst of gunfire riddled the clapboards. Patch fired the rifle toward the bushes. Moynihan fired three times and then both men rolled onto the grass. 
Hatch ejected the shell. This rifle is a piece of junk. They bought a bundle of them, Italian rifles in Maryland. I wouldn't want my life to depend on this. I think the shots frighten the bastard. Stay on the ground. Up the road from the main house, headlights bounced over the spindly swamp trees. Two cars raced at high speed, stirring up the dust. An old blue Ford with a windshield visor skidded to a stop like a runner sliding across home plate. A newer, light-colored Valiant stopped on the grass. Cubans he did not recognize rolled out of the Ford. He's in the woods, said Moynihan, pointing across the grass. An extreme barrage of automatic weapons fire lit up the area and shredded trees on the edge of the field. Clay Shaw, his gray hair prominent even in the dim light, walked unarmed in a sport coat and open shirt. Next to him was the dark-haired man, Braden, whom Patch had met in Gill's office on the 17th floor downtown. Braden hit Patch in the shoulder as the six Cubans raced down the road with weapons drawn. Got yourself into a little trouble there, Patch. It's that dummy moon, said Moynihan. Don't worry, said Braden, removing a long-barreled pistol. Be my pleasure to take care of him. If he's down near the beach, they'll tear him apart, said Moynihan. Interesting, said Shar in a smooth Louisiana accent and a surrealistic smile. November 1963 is a month of the blue moon. Chapter 56 Cabana Motor Hotel, Bon Vivant Room, Sunday, November 17, 1963, Dallas, Texas. Shari sat in the booth. She had learned that Pinky was Captain Westbrook, who now stood at the lounge's front desk. Westbrook was the head of the Dallas police personnel. Bledsoe, in casual clothes, waited at the phone outside the Bon Vivant Room. Even though she stood 25 feet away, she heard the phone ring. Bledsoe gripped the phone and put it to his ear. Mandarin. It's on the flash paper. When will Colonel Wilmoth contact Oswald's wife? I see. Where's Jack now? Jack is out of the state, said the maitre d'. For what? I have no idea. Bledsoe hung up the phone and marched back into the restaurant. I heard Michael Payne brought Oswald to the American Civil Liberties Union at SMU. Payne is in the leadership of the ACLU. Good. Put that in Ozzy's resume. He looked through the blinds into the parking lot as a dark police car pulled to the curb. Here comes our report, Pinky. This officer is having trouble with his marriage, or I should say with his girlfriend. She's getting back with hubby. Right. I know all about it. Now listen for us on the streets about Oswald. Bledsoe and Captain Westbrook returned to the booth. They all sat down and she looked out through the blinds. She noticed the cop had just stepped out of the police car up front. He disappeared around the entrance, but then reappeared near the maitre d'. The lean cop with a crop of receding hair notched on the side moved past the maitre d' without looking at him. He carried his hat as he moved toward the table. His shiny badge stood out on his blue uniform. Hello, officer. Morning, he said as he smiled toward Sherry. Ma'am. You got anything? His eyes were deep brown, but he never looked directly at any of them. I've only got a few minutes. What do you got on our man? First, uh, the Baron. He received a complete background on said individual. 112th has it now. 
then it will be forwarded at the proper time. The officer nodded and read from the little notebook. Mm -hmm. Went over the carousel on Tuesday the 5th with some Mexicans or Cubans. Turned the page. Also at the Southwest Hotel in Dallas. The guy that applied for that job said he was Oswald. Let's see. Uh, someone else was at the Bright Parking Systems looking for work as Oswald. And the other Mr. O was in a grocery store with a pretend wife. Pretend wife or pretend man, said Bledsoe. Right. They drive up in a two-tone Ford to that furniture store a couple weeks ago. This next one was crazy. I heard this man Bogard, the salesman, saw the whole thing. The other Mr. O goes into the Lincoln Mercury dealership saying his name is Lee Oswald. He might go back to Russia to buy a car. Then he goes out on the Stemmons and takes the car up to 70. Then he comes back to the showroom. Said he had money coming in in three or four weeks. Interesting, said Bledsoe. It's working, said Bosch. One more thing. Yesterday the pretend Oswald was out at the sports room rifle range in West Davis. Firing an Italian rifle with a scope. After trying to get a job at the Southland Hotel. He told them he wanted to get a good view downtown. Right. I have one problem to note to the powers to be. Well, what's that? asked Bledsoe. Contract electronics on Elm Street. The owner, Peterson, came back to the store and saw Oswald talking with... He glanced in Sherry's direction. The owner of the carousel. Thank you. I'll get that information to the proper place. The officer tucked his notebook back in his pocket. Check Redbird. They'll call you directly at the record store. Use that phone when we need you or you call us. Split timing, brother. He nodded and tipped his cap to Sherry, but never looked her in the eye. Then he left the lounge. The officer entered the squad car less than a minute later. He said something into the radio mic and then swung the dark cruiser around the parking lot. What the hell is going on here? Sounds like you're framing Oswald with a double. You got quite an imagination, said Bledsoe. Nothing of the sort. In case you hadn't noticed, please keep tabs on people to protect the general public. You don't even know this man. Oh, well, I was on the USS Bexar with Oswald sailing to Japan six years ago. I know who he is. She said nothing more to either man. Oswald's counterintelligence work in New Orleans did not bother her. His driving the car on the freeway and talking about getting money had her confused. Bletzall seemed to be double-checking what he already knew. But she did not know just who hired him. Maybe he was merely doing his job for the police department. Bledsoe escorted her across the restaurant. Ops Bledsoe, said the maitre d'. Yes. The other officer left an envelope for you on the way out. Well, why didn't he just tell me? D slid a business-sized white envelope into Bledsoe's hand. He said it was confidential. Okay, thanks. They moved into the lobby. Sherry looked at him as he stared at the envelope. Aren't you going to open it? Didn't you hear what the man said? You have a flair for the dramatics. It's probably a payoff. Shut up! His face reddened and then he ripped open the envelope. Then the lines on his face flattened. His eyes were unusually wide. Jesus! Teletype! Bad news, Bledsoe? He looked her in the eye. 
Your buddy Oswald was in the FBI Dallas office yesterday. All I'll say is an informant provided information of a critical nature. What did he say? I need to get to another phone. From the director. Threat to assassinate President Kennedy in Dallas, Texas, November 22-23-1963. Miscellaneous information concerning info has been received by the Bureau. Bureau has determined that a militant revolutionary group may attempt to assassinate President Kennedy on his proposed trip to Dallas, Texas, November 22-23-1963. All receiving offices should immediately contact all CIs, PCIS, logical race and hate groups informants and determine if any basis for threat. Bureau should be kept advised of all developments, teletype, other offices have been advised. And ACKPLS. Chapter 57, November 18, 1963. The presidential helicopter, stamped Marines, next to a white star on its body, wafted over the crowd, filling Al Lopez Field. Patch and Sherry were initially brought to this field by Connors and Moynihan. The helicopter's blades cut through the air and raised the wind as the women and men in the crowd waved on the ground. Like a cat leaping forward, the chopper made contact with the grass. The blade slowed and then came to a stop. Patch stood with Moynihan and two men he did not know in the upper area above the grandstand seats. One of the Cubans whispered in Moynihan's ear, Are you shitting me? Who, exactly? Mr. William Walter, answered the dark-haired man, in New Orleans, the FBI office, yesterday. Are they naming names? You have to let Traficante know this. It was Oswald. Patch looked around, but he thought it too risky to attempt an escape through the crowd. The Cuban man moved left. What happened? asked Patch. Oswald just let the cat out of the bag is what's happened. Moynihan shook his head. Plus the stupid bastard got into an argument with somebody at the sports room in Dallas, firing at the wrong target. If it was even him. Patch shrugged his shoulders, but he was wondering about Pilatus's footlocker in Dallas. As he peered back toward Kennedy, something about the president concerned him deeply. Last night, his repeating dream played out again. Kennedy and his wife sat in the rear of a long car as it moved into the clouds. Back on the ball field, Kennedy's reddish auburn hair contrasted the dark-haired president on the black-and-white television set. In a light gray suit and striped tie, Kennedy walked with the suited dignitaries across the infield, producing a beaming smile as he acknowledged acquaintances. Anxiety and lethal fear ripped at Patch's gut and he didn't understand why. This speech would commemorate the 50th anniversary of commercial air travel that began with a Tampa to St. Petersburg flight in 1913. Where do we go from here? Downtown, said Moynihan. Florida is loaded with exiles, you know that, Patch. Right. Can you fly? Sure, where to? You worry about that when it happens. The president soon appeared at the podium. The presidential seal affixed to the front had become synonymous with John F. Kennedy. Red, white, and blue banners adorned the stage and a large 50th anniversary logo provided the backdrop on the blue curtain. Kennedy began by saying he was glad to be back in Tampa 
The president spoke of how Tampa had borne a heavy burden to keep this country and the rest of Latin America free. Patch felt as if he needed to tell the president something. He leaned back against the concrete block because as the president spoke. Camps, because of others like it, this country is number one in aviation, not only in this country but around the world. And I hope in the 1960s that the United States of America will take the leadership again in space, in the air, and around the world so that the United States will still be one a hundred years after Tony Janus's first flight. The year 2013. What's that, Patch? asked Moynihan. The year 2013, a hundred years after the first flight here in Tampa. I'll be 92 in 2013 said Moynihan, ripe old age to live what to. What we are attempting to do in the United States in 1963, both at home and abroad, is relatively simple. And that is to maintain the peace, to maintain the vital interests of the United States, to maintain the economy of the United States moving ahead fast enough to absorb the millions of people who are coming into the labor market every year. I have to do something. That's what I'm here for said Patch as he stared at Kennedy. He can't go out. He can't go out. Patch, what the fuck is wrong with you? cried Moynihan, shaking his shoulders. You're acting like you're three sheets to the wind. Patch shook his head. He had visions of a dim, arctic landscape, low-level sunlight shadows, and thousands of tiny red and blue pills and canisters. Time to go downtown, R.D., said another one of the men. I'm getting you a drink, Patch. You're acting wacky again. They moved down the cement stairs as Kennedy continued his speech. The United States, without the effort of the 190 million people of this country, our effort not only today but ever since 1945, not only in this administration but in the two previous administrations, it is the United States, and on many occasions the United States alone, which has prevented this globe from being dominated Tell the president we made it to the moon. Sure, Patch. You and your moon. Moynihan turned to the other guy. Before we get to downtown, you better make another phone call. Something's wrong with Patch. We'll meet you at the Florentine. The man nodded and hurried under the stands. I don't know what made me say that, said Patch as they crawled into a green pickup truck. Moynihan sat next to him by the window as the other guy shifted the truck. You're all screwed up, Patch. You ain't flying nowhere. You were the backup anyway. Patch's flat expression reflected his confusion about his memory. He said nothing as they drove well in advance of the president's motorcade departing the field. Moynihan's small talk with the driver faded into the warm breezes, flittering in the side windows. Patch remained focused not on Kennedy's words, but his confident voice. Being that close at the small ball field left him somewhat uneasy. He remembered more as they neared the city. Minkowitz was much older and they were under attack. Moynihan told the driver to pull into a gas station. He pushed open the door and jogged to a payphone beyond the pumps. The call lasted less than a minute. He shrugged his shoulders when he returned. The operation's been canceled because of Miltier's mouth. One rule of thumb, Patch, you keep your mouth shut, period. What was the operation? asked Patch. Shut up, Patch. 
You mean we've wasted our time, said the other guy. And you're under orders. It's never a waste of time, Alex. I have to use the men's room, said Patch. Jesus Christ, you've been a pain in the ass today, Patch, said Moynihan. He slid his wood-handled pistol out from his coat pocket. Don't trust me, do you? No, I don't. I'm going to bring you up to that door, and if you don't take that leak in 30 seconds, the bullets are going to fly. Thanks for the vote of confidence, said Patch. The way you've been acting, Patch, tell Kennedy we made it to the moon. You're acting like some kind of nut. Patch stepped into the heat. He walked across the hot asphalt near a row of parked cars, shadowed by Moynihan and the pistol. Listen, Moynihan, that shootout the other night is turning you soft. Maybe you're right. They reached the side door of the station. Moynihan kicked it open. Okay, P. Thanks a lot. Moynihan kept his shoe between the door and the frame as Patch stepped inside. He loudly flipped up the toilet seat against the tank. Then he turned and threw his weight into the bottom of the door. He yanked the door open and caught Moynihan with a sunny list and uppercut that knocked off his glasses and sent him staggering toward the parked cars. Like a running back heading for the goal line, Patch leaped through the air, knocking Moynihan and the pistol to the hot tar surface. As Moynihan rolled, Patch hurled the gun into the bushes behind the station. Pivoting right with Moynihan stunned and on his back, Patch continued through the branches. He never checked over his shoulder as he sprinted through the adjacent apartment complex's parking lot. Upon hurling a stockade fence, he landed in someone's backyard patio. He dodged a brick fire pit and then walked at a more casual pace along the house and out the concrete drive. Once on the sidewalk, he followed the street toward the connecting roads. Drums pounded and people cheered beyond the thicket across the road. He crossed a quiet neighborhood with tree-lined streets and ranch houses. The crowds had gathered along the lawns one street over. Patch moved quickly and soon mixed with people near a stop sign. To his left, a caravan of cars approached, flanked by motorcycle cops in blue shirts. A few cars behind the lead car, the presidential car licensed GG300, slowed in the residential neighborhood, treating the adoring citizens of Tampa to the 35th president of the United States. Waving arms extended upward. Kennedy, actually standing up in the open Lincoln, seemed to acknowledge every well-wisher. The president, less than 50 feet away, looked ahead as the Lincoln slowly advanced. Patch studied his fine auburn hair and blue eyes. The president shook hands as the car crept along. Then he came to a stop only a few feet behind Patch. Kennedy's radiant smile matched his demeanor and his ruddy-skinned countenance. Then he reached out with his warm, smooth hand and squeezed Patch's hand. How are you? Fine, Mr. President. His relaxed voice assumed a more personal tone and not as humid as it can be here in Florida. So many people, Mr. President. Maybe you should use your bubble top. Then he looked directly into Patch's eyes. If you're going to run for president, then you have to be out here with the people. The Lincoln nudged forward. Kennedy, tall and straight in his gray suit, resumed his waving and shaking hands. The car slowly disappeared around the corner, but things slowed for Patch in a different way. As in the field at Churchill Farms, a shaded shroud encircled the houses and lawns. Kennedy's car moved out of sight up the road, and a diminished reality formed outside the bubble. 
the glassy countenances of the crowd convinced him that retrograde might transport him into the future at any moment. He immediately sprinted a few hundred yards ahead, dodging the dimensional barrier around the police motorcycles. Kennedy's Lincoln neared the road toward downtown Tampa. Again he saw the president, in the shaded light this time, his right hand raised as he acknowledged the crowd. The outside world passed four times slower than inside the bubble, if Mankiewicz had correctly predicted retrograde. He ran from the motorcycle through the connecting side streets toward the six-lane highway. He jogged along the creeping freeway traffic. As sweat rolled off his cheeks, he marveled at Kennedy's ability to rouse the crowd and connect to each person directly. He easily moved north of Tampa, 40 minutes having passed on his watch, but less than 10 minutes in the real world. For 90 minutes inside the bubble, Patch feared being ripped ahead in time. The bubble began to dissolve on U.S. Route 19. For several minutes he sat on the road embankment, wondering if this retrograde would permanently malfunction. He stood and stuck out his thumb. Hitchhiking would bring him north to Florida's panhandle, and then he could deal with getting to Sherry in Dallas. A sailor in a beige Ford Falcon picked him up less than 15 minutes later and drove him up to Gainesville. Half an hour later, he sat in a church van with singing parishioners up to Slidell, Louisiana. He was able to withdraw a few hundred dollars from the Bank of New Orleans and spend the night at the YMCA in Slidell. But he hardly slept because he kept thinking about Pilatus's footlocker and he kept repeating his destination, Bar Harbor Drive in Dallas. Chapter 58 On the Road to Dallas Wednesday, November 20th, 1963, 2.15 p.m. He feared Moynihan and his people would check the bus manifests. On Tuesday morning, the buses departing the highway to New Orleans constantly hummed by him as he held out his thumb to the oncoming traffic. The morning wore on and he had failed to flag down a ride. As the cars passed, he thought more about taking the bus. Moynihan and his buddies had returned to New Orleans. They would surely gun him down out in the open. Just after 2 p.m., a student in a green Volkswagen swung her car onto the road shoulder. Her name was Gretchen, and she was headed to her parents' house in Morgan City, west of New Orleans, for the Thanksgiving break. He worried about how he would approach Bar Harbor Drive. Perhaps he would need to travel house by house until he found Sherry. He yawned as Gretchen shifted the Volkswagen in downtown Morgan City. It's dark. I can drop you off at the Newport Hotel. I'm torn, said Patch. I want to go to Dallas. Your choice. Dallas is six hours away. Why don't you drop me off at the Newport? You've been so kind to bring me this far. I was going this way anyway. She turned into the lot. Patch handed her $20. At first she declined, but he insisted on paying for the gas. He thanked her and stepped into the lot. The Volkswagen engine revved. Patch moved up to the main office. He was still not sure whether he should go further. A black and white TV set in the lobby blasted out a laugh track. The little man on the sofa turned, still laughing. Yes, sir. I'm debating whether to get a room. While you're debating, I'm going to watch Patty Duke. Kathy will end up staying home because she got Patty's flu shot. I'm heading to Dallas and I don't know whether to keep hitchhiking. Dallas? He stuck out his hand. I'm Pete, by the way. What is it, six hours? 
Pete pointed at the TV. That's the Wicked Witch, you know, the maid. She's the Wicked Witch. Patch nodded. You don't know anybody driving to Dallas, do you? Hell, my buddy Jack was here about a week ago. I was at a luncheon. I haven't seen Jack in years. Jack? Patch leaned forward. See, Patty's not that bad. She's going to fill in so Kathy won't lose her boyfriend. What's his name? Who? Jack. Jack Ruby. He answered, jolting Patch's gut. Well, hell, he's been in Dallas since the 40s. He was telling Corinne that Morgan City has really grown. The commercial came on and Pete stood. Helen Corson is a nurse in Eunice at the hospital. Late shift. I'll call and see if she's left yet. Patch pressed his lips. Sure, thanks. That will get me a little bit closer. Pete lifted the curtain and disappeared into the back room. A game show started on the TV and was already at commercial when Pete opened the curtain. You're in luck. She's just leaving. Should be a few minutes. You want a coffee? I'm okay. Come on over. The price is right. Everybody has their price. Pete, I think you're exactly right. Helen drove her little Chrysler near the entrance to the Musa Hospital. Doug Cargan drives back to Dallas on Wednesday night. He begins his run on Sunday. She pointed at a green and yellow extended cube truck backed up to the loading docks. He usually leaves just after I get on duty. Why don't you wait in the emergency room and I'll go down and I'll track down Doug. She opened the door and met him by the hood. Thank you for both rides. Well, I haven't found Doug yet. She looked older than 35 in her white nurse's uniform. She pointed at the neon sign above the sliding doors. Emergency is right over there. She walked ahead of him and entered the side door to the hospital. Patch knew that going to Dallas tonight would push his stamina. The doors opened and he walked inside. Half a dozen people sat in chairs along the waiting room wall. Patch took a seat in back of the door next to a tough-looking, middle-aged woman with abrasions and bruises on her exposed skin. She showed signs of being disoriented. She turned to him and spoke almost incoherently. You! What? I said, who the hell are you? Somebody looking for a ride, he said as he looked away. Yeah, all the good it did me. She rocked and squirmed in the chair. Mac threw us out of the friggin' lounge, buddy. I'm sorry. Not as sorry as I am, mister. That was Florida, she said, grabbing his arm. Patch yanked his arm away. Those Italians, I think they were Italians. They brought me in there. Said we were going from Florida to Dallas, god damn it. She closed her eyes and snapped her head to the right. Several minutes later, her eyes popped open. You all right? asked Patch, immediately regretting having asked the question. I'm a drug addict. Sorry. Name's Melba. Well, I hope everything works out for you, Melba, said Patch, looking at the door for Doug. Oh, sure. Pick up some money. Pick up the baby. Kill Kennedy on Friday when he comes to Dallas. Patch sat up straight as her head fell onto his shoulder. Her body drifted toward Patch. What did you say, Melba? Emergency room doors spread apart and a Louisiana state cop careened inside. Two nurses appeared near the front desk. Lieutenant Fruge, I'm looking for Mrs. Louise Gilroy. 
It's about her, said the nurse, pointing to the half-awake woman next to Patch. Patch debated whether to inform the cop that Melbourne in her drug-induced state had just prattled on about Kennedy being killed in Dallas on Friday. The cop crossed the waiting room and swung his eyes toward Patch. You with her? I have no idea who she is. Then kindly take a seat across the room. She was babbling about Miss, Miss, he said, shaking her shoulders. Patch stood. A little man in gray work clothes moved into the room from the hospital corridor. You Kincaid? Yes. Doug Corrigan, he said, shaking Patch's hand. On my way to Dallas. You're welcome to come along if you can stay awake. Someone talked about taking Melba to the Eunice City Jail. Patch backtracked and then followed Doug outside. Although he believed the woman was demented or on narcotics, her threat bothered him. Something inside him shook his soul. He looked over his shoulder once they were outside. The lieutenant had the woman on her feet. Patch followed Doug out the door. How far to Dallas? asked Patch as they walked toward the green truck. A little over six hours. You go back and forth to Dallas. All the time. I was out of town yesterday and missed Governor Wallace's speech. Wallace? Sure, he's running for president against Kennedy on the Democratic side. You really think anyone can beat Kennedy? asked Patch. Maybe not. Patch looked back at the bright emergency room windows. Something wrong? Patch shook his head. Maybe. Let's head to Dallas. We're just two days from the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Patch hears a delirious woman in an emergency room talk about Kennedy being killed. Portions of the plot are revealed so many times, but they're squelched by the creative narrative before and after the assassination of Lee Harvey Oswald, the communist, with the Italian rifle. The next few days comprise the rest of the book. Everything is sourced as the way it happened. So pay close attention to the detail. There will be a quiz next week, but I will provide the answers in the form of Return to Dallas's Narrative. I'm Robert P. Fitton. Good evening. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.